1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 12. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Again, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such is as common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. He first appeared in 2006, an internet stick figure meme depicting a poorly drawn, highly overconfident, destined for disaster character. Immediately, web hipsters and millennials grabbed hold of his name and coined a phrase that combines both something spectacular with an abysmal lack of success. The character's name is Epic Fail Guy. And the phrase is Epic Fail. Epic Fail... It's already worn out, by the way, if you are aware of this, if you've used the phrase or heard it, it's already pretty much a tiring uh, phrase, used way too much. I'm, I'm struck by the fact that millennials use big words and big phrase. Everything is awesome. Have you noticed that? I got a new toothbrush and it is awesome. Epic. Everything is win, you know, there's, there's a mentality among millennials especially, there's kind of a gamer mentality where they view life as a multi-level game. So everything is epic fail or, or epic win. If we're using language in its more literal actual meaning, a dude wiping out on a skateboard is hardly an epic fail. You know, a woman walking into a water fountain while texting may be funny. <laughs> But it's not an epic fail. Bike crashes and trampoline tumbles and pitfalls and pratfalls, all of these things that are called epic fails may be awkward, maybe even embarrassing, but they're far from epic. And they're rarely ever failures. Want to see a true epic fail? All you got to do is travel back 3,500 years to the wildernesses of Sinai, and Paran and seen. You got to witness the children of Israel there at Mount Horeb or Kadesh Barnea or in the desert of Moab. There you will see multiple epic fails. For it is truly epic failure to stand in the very presence of God, see Him move, watch the miraculous, experience the supernatural firsthand, and still fall flat on your face. Epic fails. And yet they made the promised land, didn't they? Ultimately, they got there. It was an epic win for Yahweh. He was able to bring this cadre of contrary, constantly carping children into the land. Remarkable. A big win. And I was thinking about this, and this is what Paul is teaching in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Talking about Israel as a micro-example of the greater endemic problem. You see, I think we could have easily nicknamed 
the first Adam epic fail guy. He was the very first one. He and Eve together, they epically failed. And if not for the last Adam, humanity's role in history would go down as the truly epic failure. Paul writes in Romans 7.34, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That where there should be historic failure, there is instead, through Jesus, the hope of eternity. Now I want to say something to you right up front before we get into this issue of temptation and what Paul's saying just in these two verses. If you are fighting temptation, you will lose every time. Let me just make that clear because this is a Christian mentality that we need to understand I think is wrong. If I am out there duking it out with temptation, if I am going head to head with temptation, I will fail every time. What am I supposed to do, Rick? Just give in? No, I didn't say that. I just said if you are trying to stand, think you can stand against temptation, you will lose. I know this from experience. I want to invite you as we study this and think through it to consider what is your greatest temptation right now. It may not even be what it was a year ago or ten years ago. What are you struggling with? What is the thing that you cannot seem to get free of? And it's just got its hooks in you. You've tried to break free of it perhaps. You know it's a lure. You know it attracts you. You know it draws you away from the Lord. What is it? Keep that in mind as we look at these things this morning. And understand this. If you feel like epic fail guy, epic fail gal... Jesus Christ can see you through. He saw Israel through. You know, in light of and in spite of their failures, He got them home ultimately. He will do the same with you. 1 Corinthians 10.13 is one of the most famously quoted verses in the Bible. And we love this verse because it speaks to our failures and it breathes hope into our failures. It speaks hope against the very sin that seems right there, ready to pounce. However, it's usually quoted out of context. It's usually taken as a standalone verse. That's not not a bad thing because it is a standalone verse. I mean, this single verse, this single statement by the Apostle Paul, inspired of the Holy Spirit of God, stands alone as a wonderful promise of God. So it's no problem memorizing 1 Corinthians 10.13 and knowing this verse and repeating it, it's a great verse. But without the setting, it is not nearly as awesome or epic. In the run-up to this promise, Paul recalls five epic, explicit failures of Israel in the wilderness. We went over these at length on Wednesday night. Let me remind you of them if you were here. And if you weren't here, let me point them out to you quickly. Five failures of Israel in the wilderness. In verse 6, Paul refers to their craving. They craved evil things. Well, what were the evil things they craved? Meat, specifically. Meat over manna, the blessing of God, the manna that came down from heaven that they could collect every morning and they could make into all manner of things was not enough, was not good enough. 
They craved, they, they desired meat over manna. And so in Numbers chapter 11, God brings an epic quail. <laughs> you, could, you might say he brought in a, a quail storm. <laughs> quail just like crazy and God even said, you want meat? I'll give you meat until it's coming out of your nostrils. Numbers 11. First fail. Another fail, committing idolatry. Verse 7, Paul refers to their idolatry. And of course, he's reaching right back to Exodus 32, that great moment of idolatry, great in the negative sense, with the golden calf. At the Mount Horeb, right at the base of the mountain, as as Moses is up there receiving the law, receiving the word of God for this people, they are down crafting a golden calf. Oh, not to replace God but to resemble Him or to, to show Him, to, to manifest Him. Something physical they could look at and say, okay, this is our God. And, and they were thinking as they worshipped, and I think the Bible's clear about this, they're worshipping Yahweh, but they're worshipping Yahweh through a gold calf. It's despicable. But they were doing that, committing idolatry, craving meat. Number three in verse eight, they chased after, your Bibles note say this in verse eight, immorality. It is that word pornea. It is sexual immorality. Numbers 25 tells that horrific story. And then in verse nine, they complain against God. Well, God has enough in Numbers 21 and he sends fiery serpents among them that are biting the people and people are dying in the wilderness. Because they complained, because they wouldn't stop whining. You're going to whine? I'll give you something to whine about. And here come the snakes. Ever had those snake dreams, you know? Where you can't step anywhere but stepping on a snake? And the people cried out to Moses. They said, Moses, help us. We know we've sinned. We were wrong. And Moses goes before the Lord. And the Lord says, I'll tell you what I want you to do, Moses. And this is interesting. I want you to make a bronze snake, put it up on a pole, and set it as a standard before the people. And if any man looks at it and believes in me, I'll save it. It's one of the weirdest things God ever did with Israel. And there's a reason for it that we will come back to later. And verse 10, the fifth epic failure of Israel, is they were cooing against God's chosen leaders. Yes, cooing. The word is translated murmur in verse 10. Or complain, but the word literally translated is cooing like a dove in the morning. You know the sound, right? That's what they're murmuring, they're complaining in their tents, sounded like to God. Oh, they thought they were just whispering. And, but you know, that's such a dangerous thing to murmur against, specifically against God's chosen leaders. They complained against Moses, complained against Aaron. They said, who are you to lead us? Why should you be in that role, in that position? Why should we follow you? Why should we listen to you? And it sounded like cooing. And the result was not good. That's number 16. You can go back and study all of those and think them through. But in verse 11, Paul writes, Now these things happened to them as an example. And they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Note that. Paul says, we are at the end of the ages. And he uttered this 2,000 years ago. 
He also said in Romans 13.11, it's already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 5, Paul said, The Lord is near. In Revelation 22, verse 21, He testified, that is Jesus, to these things and says, Yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And some would hear that and they would mock the delay. End of the age, 2,000 years ago? Well, clearly Paul was wrong. I say, God is patient. And if Paul, and if Peter, and if John saw themselves at the end of the ages, truly, brothers and sisters, how close are we? If they were at the end 2,000 years ago, i said before, we are in overtime. And time is running out. And I say that not to scare anyone, but that should be one of our greatest motivations as followers of Jesus. We don't have the time to mess around. We don't have the time to sit back and not worry about what may happen to friends and family who don't know Jesus. We don't have the time. Paul lived that way. Paul was epic in his missionary journeys. He was intense. He was constant because he didn't have the time to waste. And neither do we. For now, now salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Paul says in verse 12 then, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. And that was the problem of the church at Corinth and their whole argument about being able to eat in the idol temples, in the pagan temples, We're strong. We're fine. We know Jesus. We got it down. And Paul says, take heed. The moment you think that you are strong in and of yourself, that you can handle it, you are in your most dangerous place. Take heed, he says. Especially if you think you're strong. Because the truth is, we are not as strong as we think we are. We are not so strong a people. In fact, I think we all know it. Strong men, strong women of the world are playing a game. Putting off the reality. Hiding the fact that behind closed doors and behind closed hearts, we all have a sense that, man, this whole thing could come apart. I hope nobody really knows how I'm feeling this morning at church because (laughs) I am barely holding it together. And yet we present as so strong. We look around at other Christians, other followers, and we say, Oh, he's strong, she's strong, they got it together. Why can't I? You want to know why? Because neither can they. Because none of us are strong in and of ourselves. We are failures. (laughs) Encouraged yet? We are weak. We are feeble. We are fragile people. Take heed, Paul says. Take heed. How do, I, how do I do that? Well, you know what? I've come to realize over the years how desperately I need you. I need you, brothers and sisters. I need to see your faith. I need to walk alongside you. I need to hear your prayers. I need you. And I am not ashamed to say, I barely make it from Sunday to Wednesday. Barely. Because I need you. I need the fellowship of other believers. 
I need the support and the strength and the encouragement that comes from others who, yes, affirm the faith that I have, but the faith that sometimes can be a little struggling. We need each other. We need the constancy of worship. We need the strength that comes from prayer. Not just our own, but hearing our brothers and sisters pray together. We need the ministry of the Word of God. We need Jesus. And don't ever let anybody tell you otherwise. Christianity is a crutch. Christianity is much more than a crutch. Christianity is my only hope. I need Jesus Christ. Take heed. Take heed. And then take hope. Verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Praise the Lord. Take hope. Don't think yourself so strong and recognize that in your weakness, in your frailty, there's no temptation that God hasn't been aware of that that can wipe you out. There's nothing that can come against you that can ruin you. That is just great news. But here's where it gets interesting. He says, God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, right? But wasn't Israel? Weren't they tempted beyond what they were able? I mean, barreling headlong into multiple enormous fiascos? Which is just another way to say epic fail. (laughs) Are we stronger than they? Let's pause for just a moment and dispel that lie. Well, yeah, that was Israel, you know. I mean, hey, we have the Word of God. We have the indwelling Spirit of God. Okay, so why do we keep failing? How does temptation get the better of me if truly no temptation that God won't allow me to be tempted beyond what I am able? That's a tough one. I mean, on the one hand, God won't allow us to be tempted beyond what we can handle. And yet, on the other hand, we sure seem to be temptable. Sometimes even beyond what we can handle. It's just too hard. It's just too much. It's just overwhelming. Don't you ever feel like giving up? Don't you ever feel like just giving in and saying, I quit. I'm not going to fight it anymore. I can't. The pressure's too intense. And there's another problem with this glorious verse. It says He will provide the way of escape. But then it says, so you'll be able to endure it. Well, that sounds like a contradiction. Either I can get out or I have to endure. How can it be both? There's a way out, but I have to keep enduring? Well, let's think about this for a minute. Break this verse down. Paul says, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. The word temptation, understand that word, first of all, is parasmos. You will see it a lot in the New Testament. Parasmos, or parazo, 
And the word literally is a trial or a test. Now, usually, and when used in the negative, and specifically of Satan and related to sin, it is for the purpose of making you stumble. That's how Satan would use temptation. To try to make you stumble, to trip you up, to cause you to sin. God uses parasmos too. But in that case, it is a test or a trial to prove you. It is never to make you stumble or sin. Primarily, parasmos has to do with temptation unto sin. And James writes in James 1.13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and He Himself does not tempt anyone. Now some will say, well wait, but you just said He tests. He does test. But understand that God will never give you a test that might cause you to sin. So that then He can say, see, I knew you were a failure. Now see, that's what Satan does. God will only provide tests that prove to you that Jesus is present. He will only provide tests that show you, that help you realize that in Jesus Christ and by the power and presence of His Spirit, you can stand. But if He for a second knows that this temptation, this test, this trial is going to be too much, it's not of the Lord. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. Each one, James says, is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. And so here Paul is dealing with temptation to sin and the way of escape. And he believe, he begins with what I would call the lie of isolation. The lie of isolation No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. The lie of isolation is that you are in this alone. That you're the only one who feels the way you're feeling. You're the only one whose sin is so burdensome. You're the only one who is thinking along the lines of this particular sin. Please understand, since the very first man and woman, temptation has been common to all humanity. That there is not a single person sitting in here this morning who doesn't deal with temptation, hasn't dealt with temptation, or will not deal with temptation in the future. It is common to everyone. That phrase, common to man, is anthropinos. And it means of humanity. So temptation is common to all humanity. But the deceiver comes along and he whispers, You're the only one who feels this way, you sick, perverted, abnormal failure. You know, one of the best and most uncomfortable examples I can give you of that is pornography. And we talked about this a bit, gave some statistics on Wednesday night. And the issue of pornography in our culture, I think I shared 10 to 14 billion dollars annually are spent on pornography in America, which is more than pro basketball, baseball, and football combined. 10 to 14 billion. We talked about that Wednesday, and, and afterwards, Rachel came up to me, and we were talking a little bit. And she was she was discussing the internship that she just came out of, and she said what was a shocker to her, what stunned her, was that when uh, interviewing young men specifically for the internship, the question asked was not whether or not they were involved with pornography, but to what extent, because it's simply understood. 
how powerful it is with these little doohickeys. Anywhere you are, everywhere you go, you have that availability. Do you not think that's tempting? And the statistics are rising among women as well. Used to not really be an issue. More of a male problem. And now it is just a cultural problem. Pornography. Everyone at some level is dealing with temptation. And pornography is one of those great lures. And there are so many. And it breaks my heart. But so many sitting in churches every Sunday with that, with that reality in their head. I think age 11 is the average for a person first viewing pornography and it's typically as early as uh, they say 8 to 12 right in there 11 is the average how many children have already seen are already aware of either by accident or by design man when I was a kid you couldn't get it that easily you know I had friends whose fathers subscribed to Playboy for the articles Mm mm-hmm And the kids knew where their fathers kept the magazines. This kind of thing wipes us out. And I'm not just talking about pornography. I'm talking about the fear that someone in the fellowship might find out what I have viewed last week. Or last night. Or this morning. I'm talking generically, by the way. I'm not saying that I have viewed it this morning. We think we are alone in it. We think we are the only ones. And so what do we do? We don't confess it. Because if I confess it, and no one else has felt this way, oh man, then I am that sick, perverted, abnormal failure. It's the lie of isolation. Listen, whatever your temptation might be this morning, I can guarantee you someone else has struggled with it or is struggling with it or will struggle with it. No temptation, no temptation has overtaken you but such as is common to man. We deny the lie of isolation. Man, fight back. Don't just accept a temptation to sin. You are not alone. Let's fight together. Let's stand together. Men go to men. Women go to women. Husbands go to wives. Wives go to husbands. Talk about your temptation. Lay it out on the table. This is my lure. This is my epic failure. This is the one that can take me down. Share it. With somebody else who can then be in accountability with you. Bring it into the light and the power is gutted from the temptation. Leave it in the dark and it will hold you. The lie of isolation. Romans 3.23 tells us all have sinned. That's beyond even temptation. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. But because of the lie of isolation, people will say, how can I be confident of my redemption? Oh, I know you all are. How can I be? I know he is right down the row. She is there. I see her praying during communion. Obviously a holy person, but that's not me. 
How can I know I have been redeemed? Listen. Not only is temptation common to man, but temptation is common, was common to the Son of Man. You think you're alone in temptation? Jesus was tempted. Now, now this makes people really uncomfortable. Wait a minute, but, but Jesus didn't sin. I didn't say He sinned. But did He face temptation? You better believe it. The Bible tells us He did and then gives example of it happening. Hebrews 4.15 For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted, parazzo, in all things as we are, yet without sin. You think you're alone in your temptation? Guess what? Jesus has gone through temptation. Jesus knows what it's like to be tempted, to be drawn, to be lured. Well, how can the perfect man be temptable? Well, how would we know he was the perfect man if he wasn't? How could he have been fully man and not experience temptation, which is common to all mankind? If Jesus was fully man as well as fully God, then he was fully tempted. Just as you, just as I have been, can be tempted. Yet, of course, he was without sin. He never caved in. And you know what that tells us? It tells us two things. Number one, temptation can be escaped. It can be conquered by someone in flesh. Jesus showed us as much. And secondly, marvelously, the temptations of Christ tells me He gets it. He understands. Now I may be in this room the only one who is tempted in a certain direction, or I may think that I am. But the moment I realize Jesus was tempted, I can say, Ah, but He gets it. He understands. He knows what my weaknesses are. He Himself has been in weak human flesh, though without sin. Which encourages me because then I think, well, if Jesus was sinless, if Jesus overcame temptation, then perhaps, maybe, yes, in fact, there is a way that I can as well. That I can truly be Christ-like when temptation comes along. And so Jesus Christ dismisses the lie of isolation. I hope we've done at least some of that this morning already. Dismiss the lie of isolation. You are not alone in this. Other people have felt it. The Son of Man knows exactly where you are. No temptation has overtaken you. But such as is common to man and, listen, God is faithful. And that's the key. Second thing to note, the Lord of Intervention. The Lord of intervention. God is faithful. It is to Him that we run. Paul writes this. Remember the context. He writes this to the church at Corinth where some Corinthians were arguing for their right to keep eating in the pagan temples, to keep entering into the pagan temples because they were strong, because it was not a problem for them anymore, although it was obviously a problem for some of their brothers and sisters. The Bible says this, Proverbs 18, verse 10, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runs into it and is safe. 
It's one of my favorite verses. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. When temptation comes, which way do you run? Are you running to the Lord? Do you run into the temptation or do you run into the strong tower who is the Lord Jesus Christ? And note that the proverb does not say that the righteous stand firm in their own pious integrity. The righteous run like frightened children into the Lord. That's what makes us righteous. Is we run to Him. We cry for Him. We reach for Him. We enter Him. We hightail it to Jesus when temptation starts to draw on us. Very simply put, the difference between righteous and unrighteous thinking is the direction you run. The unrighteous run headlong into sin. The righteous run to the Lord. So, when temptation comes your way, don't walk, don't meander, don't amble or mosey. Run into the strong tower. Run to the Lord. You get out of the place of the temptation. And note this, it is to God's faithfulness that we appeal, not our own. And one of the biggest problems, the reason why temptation does overtake, even though it can be avoided, the reason why we do fail and fall to temptation and sin, is because we're trusting our righteousness. We're trusting our faithfulness. I'm saying, I have been a Christian now for some 42 years of my life. From the day of my commitment. 42 years, I ought to be able to handle this now. Uh Uh-uh. Nope. Not as long as I'm still in flesh. And what 42 years of following Jesus Christ has taught me is that the only way I cannot be overtaken by temptation is if I race to the strong tower. If I run to the Lord, if I call upon and cry out the name of Jesus Christ. Psalm 36 verse 5, your loving kindness, O Lord, extends to the heavens and your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are a great deep. Lamentations 3.22, the Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. There is not a single verse in the Bible that says great is our faithfulness. Because it's not true. Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 3, Paul says, The Lord is faithful, and He will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13, If we are faithless, and we are, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. And so as simple as this may sound, it is not my strength, it is not my religiosity, it is not not my attendance record, it is not my faithfulness that saves me, it is His. It is always His, and my daddy's got big arms. You're not going to run to the Lord and find out, well, He's really hanging on to too many of the kids right now, so I'll just stand aside. It's foolishness. My faithfulness only exists because He is faithful. Now, I hear these things and I think that sounds so good. Yeah, that sounds good. I'm not isolated. I'm not the only one. Jesus understands me and I can run to Him and that feels good. It sounds good. But is it true? 
You see, the devil loves to try and undermine God's faithfulness. He did it with the very first temptation. All the way back in Genesis chapter 3. Turn back there. Open your Bibles to Genesis 3. Keep your finger there in 1 Corinthians. Genesis chapter 3. In a passage that I'm sure is all too familiar to many of you. And yet, watch Satan make his play. Genesis chapter 3 verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. And she's already waffling. You realize that? Because God didn't say they couldn't touch it. He just said, don't eat from it. And she adds, we can't eat from it or or touch it. She's already nervous. Already waffling, already in danger. The temptation is happening. And in verse 4, the serpent said to the woman, Come on. Guess my translation. You surely will not die. Come on. I know you read that in your Bible. I know that the preacher said that one Sunday. Come on. We know better. You surely shall not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good from evil. And of course, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate because he was an idiot. And the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loin coverings. You know the story. The devil pulls this one out on her. Look, look, I I know what God said, but come on. And I wonder in in that moment, I I can't prove this, but she said, "We we may not eat from it or touch it. I bet the first thing Eve did was touch the tree, and nothing happened. And then plucked the fruit. Nothing happened. Smelled it. Nothing's happening here. Maybe even licked it. (laughs) And then a nibble, and then a bite, and then the whole thing. And nothing happened. Wait a minute, nothing happened. God said in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And in the day that they ate of it, death entered the world and they started dying. The devil comes along and says, Come on. Has the Lord really said this? He undermines the faithfulness of God. He tries to take away from the Lord as a strong tower. He tries to make it easy and palatable. And by the way, the devil pulled out the same old thin playbook. In the wilderness with Jesus. Turn over to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. First book in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 4. Follow along. Watch this. 
Now the same devil, the same serpent, the same one, who at the very beginning caused Adam and Eve to be tempted, lured, and then, of course, they chose to sin, we're told in Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Wait a minute, whoa, hold on. He was led by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil. So was the Holy Spirit in collusion with Satan? Of course not. Of course not. But temptation, parasmos, again has two meanings. It means to be to tempt to evil, which is what the devil does. It also means to test or prove for good, which is what God does. God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you were able. Here's Jesus starving after 40 days in the wilderness and along comes the tempter and starts to tempt him to do what his body needs, what his body wants. Why would the Spirit take him and put him in that position? Because the Spirit knew something. What's that? He knew Jesus had to be proven. Well, wait a minute. To who? To you. And to me. How marvelous is it that in the Scriptures we are able to see Jesus go through temptation just like we do and come out the other side. Showing us how you deal with it, how you face it, but also showing us clearly that Jesus Christ is one who can be trusted, both tempted but enduring. Tempted, yes, but strong. Tempted but perfect. Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness for our good, that we might see Him proven. I love the old J. Vernon McGee example where he talks about a railroad trestle. Out in West Texas, he said there was an old railroad trestle across a dry creek bed, and they brought in these guys who, who tore it up and then built a new trestle. And they finished the work. And then, as all the town came out to see, because they didn't have anything else to do in those days, they all came out to see... They brought a huge steam engine out and they ran it across the trestle. And then they ran it back across the trestle. They did this three or four times and then the train went on to where its destination was. And McGee said, that's the point. They would not have run the train across that trestle if they were not sure that the trestle would stand up. But we, the townsfolk, and all those who would ride the train needed to see that it was proven solid. And that's the temptation of Jesus. Proven for us so that we know not only does He understand us, but we can trust Him. He is a strong tower into whom we can run and be safe. Well, verse 2 in Matthew chapter 4 tells us after He had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, He then became hungry, and the tempter came and said to Him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. Now, I'm not going to do the whole story, but I want you to note this twice. The devil says, If you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God, what is He doing? He is questioning God's faithfulness to His Son. He's questioning God's faithfulness to His Son. If you are the Son of God, do this. 
You can handle it. If you're really the Son of God. Now, of course, Jesus in His divinity knew who He was. Always knew who He was. But in His humanity, alone in the wilderness, with the devil, isolated, starving, if you really are the Son of God. The devil does the same thing to you and to me. What he does is he says, if you are really one of his sons, one of his daughters, how come you're so messed up? If you're really a child of God, why are you even thinking along the lines of this temptation? If, and by the way, if God loves you as a father, how could he let you get yourself in this place? How could God allow this to happen to you? One of the fastest ways people trip and fall into sin is feeling like God has let them down. Well, yeah, 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 if God really cared about me, then how come, then I wouldn't even be in this position. If you are a son, if you're a daughter of God, you wouldn't be facing this. Can I just remind you that the devil is an habitual liar? He is the father of all lies. Jesus said he has been a liar from the beginning, John chapter 8. Don't listen. It's all lies from the devil. God, on the other hand, is a faithful father. He has proven that to be true across all of history. And I would suspect in your life, he has proven himself to be a faithful father. Who does not let his people down and does not disappear when we need him most. And even while Israel failed every single temptation in the wilderness, note this, Jesus succeeded against everyone in His wilderness. How did He do it? Very simply. People might say, well, because by quoting Scripture, yes, He did. Absolutely. He's quoting Deuteronomy to the devil over and over in every temptation. I have a sense that Jesus probably had been meditating on the book of Deuteronomy while in the wilderness because he called it to mind so instantly. But I don't think that's what truly caused him to overcome and to win against these temptations. I think it was that he appealed to the faithfulness of God. Over and over, he appeals to God's faithfulness. Look at it, verse 4. It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God, Jesus says. Verse 7. On the other hand, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And down in verse 10. Go, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. Not only is Jesus quoting Scripture, but He's quoting Scripture that says God is faithful. What's he doing? He's running into the strong tower. Jesus? Yes, Jesus in his human flesh is running into the strong tower of the Father. What a great example. If I can do that, if I were to do that every time temptation came, run to the strong tower. God is faithful. Now, quickly, back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. Number three, note this. The limitations of temptations. The limitations of temptations. The apostle says, God, who knows the utter limits of your faith... 
plays a supervisory role over every temptation that comes into your life. I don't know if you've ever considered it that way. If there is a temptation in your life, God is the supervisor. What do you mean, Rick? I mean, He knows it's there. I mean, He knew it was coming. I mean, He would not have allowed the temptation if He didn't know you could handle it. Well, then why do I sin? Well, we'll get there. But He knows. Think about Job. I'll just read this to you, but back in the book of Job, what a a remarkable story about this man who everything was going well. He had it all together. Beautiful wife, beautiful kids. He had money. He had lands. He had flocks and herds. This guy was, he was seen as the jewel of the East. I mean, people looked at him and said, Job, Job, he's our man. And the devil comes before the Lord, and the Lord actually kind of taunts the devil and says, Hey, have you, you checked out my servant Job? And Satan's like, yeah, yeah, that's because you gave him everything. Take away from him, make it all fall apart, and it won't be a problem. He'll deny you in a miner's minute. I'm not sure what a miner's minute is, Susie, but maybe we can talk about that sometime. (laughs) Satan does that. Listen to what the Lord says to Satan. Don't miss this. Job chapter 1, verse 12. Then the Lord said, behold... All that he has is in your power, only do not put forth your hand on him. Okay, so who's in charge? God is. Who is supervising the level of temptation that is about to land on the head of Job? God is. You may do these things, only don't put your hand on him. He set the limits right there. He will do it again. Satan comes back. Everything falls apart in Job's life, and yet he does not deny God. So Satan returns to the Lord and says, well, you know what? All you got to do is touch his body, and and he will deny you. And so the Lord said to Satan, Job chapter 2, verse 6, Behold, he is in your power. Only spare his life. God is the supervisor. God controlled the extent of Job's trials. God did it, not Satan. Why? Because the Lord knew the limits of Job's faith. And He set limitations on Job's temptations. Now, you may say, reading the book of Job and hearing that story, that just seems harsh. I don't know if if I was in Job's sackcloth and ashes. I don't know what I would do. That's the point. God does. God knows what you can handle. God knows what you are able to bear up against. He knows this. And so something to realize in all of this, I'm not alone in my temptations. And the Lord is the Lord of intervention. He is the strong tower into whom I can run. But He also sets limitations on my temptations. There's not a person on earth, not a follower of Jesus anyway, who can rightly say, it was just too much for me. No, it wasn't. Well, it obviously was because I gave in. Yeah, but you see, the Lord only allows what you can handle. And if you didn't handle it, it's not because you couldn't. It's because you chose not to. It's because you chose to allow the temptation to get the better of you, but it wouldn't have come. It wouldn't have come at all if God didn't know you could bear up against it. I don't know, again, about you, but I have never thought about it in these terms. That God sets the limits for my temptations. He knows my limits. 
And so He puts limitations on what comes to me. What does that mean practically? Listen. That means that while temptations will come and go, sin is not inevitable. I have a sin nature, I know this, but that doesn't mean I have to sin. That doesn't mean I am bound to sin. I'm going down, might as well enjoy it. I think I've told you all the story before about my father and and his brother when they were kids on an Easter Sunday. And they were both decked out in their Easter Sunday suits. And my father's family was not well off. And so they were, you know, this was significant expense that they both had these beautiful new Easter Sunday suits as kids. And they went out in the backyard and their mom said, stay clean, we're heading to church after this. So they went out in the backyard and they started swinging across the creek on the tire swing. (laughs) Tire swing broke. My Uncle Lynn went straight into the muddy creek. And he starts splashing around and just having a glorious time in the mud. And my dad looked at him and went, You're going to get a spanking. And Lynn said, Yeah, well, I'm going to have fun on the way down. (laughs) And my dad said, Okay, and then he went. (laughs) And what a picture for us in sin. Well, if I'm going to sin anyway, might as well sin big. And I am telling you, you don't have to. You do not have to do it. Oh yeah, I do. Is it just too much for me? No, it's not. Not if you'll run to the strong tower. Not if you'll put your trust in the faithfulness of God over your own. Not if you'll trust His righteousness as opposed to your righteousness. Sin is not inevitable. Now, put it in context of what we talked about last week. Last week we talked about holy have-tos. There are some holy have-tos. You know what? You don't have to yield to temptation. That is never a have to. I don't have to give in to sin. I have to follow the Lord. I have to trust in the Lord. There are things He asked me to do, and yes, I have to do them. I do not have to sin. Which is why Jesus taught us to pray, Matthew 6.13, Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And my friends, Jesus never prayed hopeless prayers. He would not have prayed that if it was hopeless. Do not, Lord, lead us into temptation. Deliver us from evil. Temptation itself is not inescapable. Which is part of the hope of this whole verse. And so Paul says, But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. The way of escape. Ekbasis in the Greek. Ek is the word which means out of, and basis means a way or a pathway. It's a pathway out, a way out, an escape. This is our exit strategy. For as we've talked about these things, you are not, the lie of isolation, you are not isolated in your sin or in your temptation. The Lord of intervention, He is the strong tower to whom we can run. I forget what the third one is. The limitations of temptation. See, you were listening. It actually was a test. The limitations of temptation. God sets limits so that our temptation is not more than we can handle. And now Paul describes the light at the end of the tunnel. The light at the end of the tunnel. Now think this through with me. In all the dark pressure of temptation, there is a light you can see. 
there is a way out. So that, Paul says, you will be able to endure it. See, the light is part of the endurance. The end to the temptation is what allows me to see my way through it. See, when he says that God will provide a way of escape, it doesn't mean that the escape is instantaneous. It doesn't mean you're immediately out of the tunnel, that all temptation ceases, and the air clears, and it's good, and the birds are singing. No. The temptation may yet be there, but you see the light and suddenly have the strength to say no to the darkness pressing in on either side. James 5.11 says, We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job? Well, yeah, as a matter of fact, we just did. And have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. The light at the end of the tunnel tells us that our exit is rarely instantaneous. So the way of escape is also the way of endurance. We endure temptation as we recognize there is a bright and shining light right there at the end of it. I can see the light. I can see the light at the end of the tunnel. I can see it at at the end of my present temptation. Whatever you're struggling with right now, if you will look up, you will see the light. You see the way out. Right now. We also see the light at the end of the tunnel at the end of the ages. For Jesus said, keep on the alert at all times, Luke 21, 36, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. The light, the end of the tunnel, the way of escape. You know who I'm talking about. Jesus, who is the light of the world. John 8, 12, he says, He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He is the light at the end of the tunnel. And Jesus, who said, I am the way and the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father but through me. You want a way out of any temptation, every temptation, cry Jesus. Well, that seems so simple. It is. Cry Jesus. Whisper Jesus. Speak the name of Jesus and watch the air clear. And see the light brighten. And find yourself able to endure because He is faithful even when we are not. Every Think about this. Every single one of Israel's epic failures in the wilderness, every one is answered by Jesus. Craving meat instead of manna, Jesus is the bread of heaven. He said in John 6.35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. How about committing idolatry? Jesus is true. He is the authentic God. He's not wood and stone. He's not stony eyes. Hands unable to move. A heart that doesn't beat. Jesus is real. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw His glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John 1.14 Israel chasing after sexual immorality. Okay, the lure, the temptation of sexual sin. Listen, Jesus is pure intimacy. Like no other. Greater love has no one than this. John 15.13 that He lay down His life for His friends. 
And so often the temptation to sexual things is trying to find an empty, vapid fulfillment that does not last and does not remain. And Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And nobody has greater love for you than this. Lust, by the way, is the cheap, tawdry, empty lie. Love is what we want. Love is what we desire. And love is what Jesus offers. Oh, they complained against God? And so he had Moses make that stick with that bronze snake on it. And Jesus said, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in Him will have eternal life. John 3, 14 and 15. Jesus is the serpent on the pole. Oh, oh, wait a minute, Rick. I don't like the sound of that. I don't like the look of Jesus on the cross either. But the reason why God would choose a serpent, the very picture of sin in the Bible, and put it up on a pole was to say, one day my son is going to come perfect and pure and loving and awesome and he is going to be put up on a pole and he will become sin. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And so Jesus, lifted up, answers that sin, that temptation in the wilderness. What about the last one? Murmuring against God's chosen leaders. Listen, Jesus is the authority. Jesus is the leader. He is the head of all things. He is the leader. He is the one in charge. And at the name of Jesus, Philippians 2.10 tells us, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's your way out. He's your way out of temptation. Your way out is not the number of verses you have memorized, but keep memorizing. Your way out is not the quality of your church attendance, but keep coming. Your way out is not your Christian brothers and sisters, but confess. Your way out is Jesus Christ. Call out His name. Cry out to Him. Speak His name in the darkest of times and you will see the light at the end of the tunnel. Maybe you feel like this morning you're way past temptation. I've been tempted and I am just stuck in this perpetual sin. I keep going back to it again and again. I've caved in. I've fallen hard. And as a matter of fact, right now I feel like my life is an epic fail. You can break that lie. The Bible tells us, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins... He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He is so good. There is nothing you've got, none of the baggage perhaps that any of us have dragged in here this morning that Jesus isn't willing to right now say, I will take that from you. You just confess it to me, I'll take it. It's gone. And I will strengthen you against any temptation in the future to the same old stuff. What do I have to do, Lord? Call on the name of Jesus. Everyone who calls on the name of Jesus will be saved. And you can trust that. 
Father, I pray that You will bring salvation to bear this morning. Lord, for Christians sitting here feeling like they are overtaken, like they cannot control some problem, some issue, some temptation in their life, Father, I pray You would break that lie in the name of Jesus Christ. Remove the isolation. Bring hearts to confession. And cleanse us, Lord, of all unrighteousness. We cry Jesus today. We call upon the name of Jesus today. You are the light at the end of the tunnel. You are the way of escape. We believe this. We trust You for it. And so, Jesus, I pray, move in the body today. Move among us in our fellowship. Bring us to our knees if you need to, Lord. Forgive us of all sin. And fix our eyes on Jesus. In His name we pray. Amen. Let's stand up together. Won't you run to the Lord this morning? If you have anything you've got to get free of, don't stand there and pretend like you can be strong enough. Come and be prayed for. Confess it to the Lord. Run to the strong time. Prayer team, come on up. Please come.